Ethic Episode 57, Health Informatics with Brian Coleman. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Exploring Chiropractic. I'm Nathan Cashin. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Brian Coleman, a clinician scientist at the VA Hospital in Connecticut and health informatics researcher at Yale University Medical School. In this interview, we discuss Brian's unconventional path through medical school, and we get to geek out on topics such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, and the field of health informatics. We talk about how it applies to the chiropractic profession and how interested chiropractic students can find post-doctorate research opportunities. I hope you enjoy this interview with Brian Coleman. Brian, thanks so much for joining me on Exploring Chiropractic. Uh, I've been very intrigued kind of seeing some posts by you on Facebook and then reading a little bit about what you do. You are a chiropractor, uh, but also a researcher in health informatics and these fancy terms of big data and AI and machine learning. I really just want to hear a little bit about your experience. Um, But to start off, what did you want to do when you were a little kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, sure. So, well, first off, thanks for having me, Nathan. I think it's it's a great opportunity, and I'm I'm excited to to share with you today. Um, I guess I I could. So the the earliest thing I remember wanting to be was a garbage man, but that's just totally separate, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. Um, I think a lot of kids want to be that. <laughs> I always thought it was I great. Do, yeah. It was just you know ride along on the edge of a truck, but um, you know I kind of always had this interest in science and and engineering and. Um, you know, I could be cliche and also say I wanted to be an astronaut and I, I did for at least mm-hmm. a period of time. And, um, that led I me to you worked for NASA for a while. Well, I did. Uh, I worked I was, with I NASA. Kind of did. Yeah. I was awarded a little bit of funding from a, a NASA subsidiary grant, which was awesome to be able to just say that I was involved in something that, you know, potentially had the chance to go to space and even though it didn't, but, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, as you know, my interest was always kind of going towards engineering and, and, uh, and healthcare in particular, I, you know, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. And, um, I, I just sort of gotten to a point where it was like, wh- how can I do all of these things and what can I do to pull them together? Yeah. And it, it took me, it took me a little bit of time to figure that out, but ultimately through my the kind of winding path after, uh, you know, getting further into chiropractic school, um, I realized that there was an opportunity in informatics that would allow me to kind of pull in that engineering background, but also to, um, you know, be able to still be linked into healthcare and try to help some people that way. And it, it would allow me to have even a bigger reach than uh, one-on-one clinical encounters would do. So how did you go from wanting to be an astronaut or garbage man, but then becoming a, going to chiropractic school to become a chiropractor? Yeah. So um, I, I, that starts out, I guess, with, I, I went to undergraduate school for, for biomedical engineering and um, I was, I was set, I was doing biomedical engineering and I was going to medical school. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I knew that was oh. the route. It was going to let me, you know, be an engineer, but also, uh, you know, develop devices and things like that, that I thought was awesome. Um, in my senior year of, of undergraduate school, I, I did a, a senior design project, which we mentioned had, had a little bit of grant funding from NASA, which led me to think like, Hey, this could be a, uh, you know, an alternative path instead. And, and maybe I don't want to pursue medical school. I wanted to pursue um, engineering industry jobs. And and so I, I went that route. I, I said, I'm not going to apply to med school in my senior year. I said, you know, if worst case, I'll take a, a gap year or something and figure out 
you know, what I want to do uh, when I get older. Um, and so I, uh, I ultimately ended up uh, looking for industry jobs for a period of time. And at the time when I graduated was right at the peak of the, the most recent major recession for uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, job opportunities in engineering. And um, that led me to say, well, what else could I do? And uh, I had always gone to a chiropractor as an athlete in my younger years, high school years. And, um, you know, I went and talked with the, the guy who I went to go see all the time. And I said, well, you know, what can I do with this? Just, you know, learning. I was, I was exploring chiropractic in that sense. Um, and so I, I said, you know, this seems interesting. It seems like something I could do. I could apply some of that biomechanics knowledge that I had developed mm-hmm. in biomedical engineering. I thought, hey, maybe I could develop some devices. Um, and so I said, let's do it. So I, I jumped into chiropractic school about halfway through um, that that academic year because uh, I went to the University of Bridgeport where they allowed you to they dual entry in the spring and the fall. And so I entered in the spring um, after taking a, about six months off um, and, uh, you know, entered and, and said, all right, here's where I am now. What do I want to do with it from there? Wow, very interesting. Um, was there any any question or hesitation of like, I was going to be a medical student, but now I'm going to go do, like, was chiropractic kind of a concession in any way? Or um, or did you feel it, it better fit with the biomechanics and that type of stuff? So I never really thought of it as a concession. Um, I, I, I never, like, saw, I never really even you know, pursued medical school in a sense that's like Mm -hmm. some people say, oh, I didn't get in and that's why I chose chiropractic. That wasn't the case for me, at least personally. Um, I I just said, hey, this seems like a cool opportunity. Let's give it a try. Um, I didn't really learn too much about um, some of the details of the chiropractic profession and some of the challenges faced by the chiropractic profession um, until Mm -hmm. after I was you know, in chiropractic school and enrolled. But at the same time, then I sort of had to weigh out, okay, well, knowing these challenges and knowing what this can potentially allow me to do and get involved in some of these things. Like I was, I was even early on in chiropractic school, I was going, I was going to be a sports chiropractor. I was going to do biomechanics. I was going to do, you know, uh, work with athletes and try to work with Olympians and professional athletes in that route. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately <laughs> diverted my path even while I was in chiropractic school to do something totally different, obviously. Um, but it never to me seemed like it was necessarily a concession, just that it was uh, a different route that I pivoted towards and, uh, you know, made the best of it. Yeah. And so you kind of said you you changed your path a little bit as well in chiropractic school and that you started focusing more on research, academics. Um, did that have to do with your previous exposure kind of with biomedical engineering? And had you done the NASA project by then? I did. So yeah, that was completed in my, my senior year of my, my time at UConn and under undergrad. Um, I, I, while I was there at UConn, I, I did, uh, multiple different research assistant positions working in different labs, which I always thought was fun. I always enjoyed it. I always Mm -hmm. thought it was, you know, exciting to be trying to learn something new that people hadn't learned before and trying to share, um, you know, what you could with, with other people who had interest in the same, you know, areas of interest that you had. Um, so then when I got into chiropractic school, um, and I, I was, you know, about a year in, I actually almost considered leaving. Um, I, I was mm. going to consider going back to UConn, ironically enough, um, for a, a PhD in neuroengineering. Um, and I actually opted against it after learning and thinking a little bit more. I said, Hey, what if I stick with what I'm doing now? 
but figure out a way to pivot towards that more research-based career in the next, uh, in my case, three years of, of Cairo school. And so I started to kind of seek out what opportunities could I have that I could, um, you know, jump into and say, yeah, let's, let's turn this into something. Um, it, it took a little bit of time. It took me until um, my, my final year of Cairo school to really find a nice fit as a research assistant that I was able to then parlay into, um, you know, kind of what I'm doing now. I kind of set the stage for everything mm-hmm. I'm doing now, but I kind of knew right away that uh, I wanted to go into research and academia, whether that be at a chiropractic school, at a different school, teaching, you know, anatomy and physiology or biomechanics or sort of anything else. We're, we're certainly more than qualified to teach so long as you find the right fit for, for your experience and your uh, expertise. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's so many opportunities outside of clinical chiropractic that I think a lot of students aren't quite aware of. Um, but also kind of, as you said, like there's, there's the risk of exploring too much and, and a good argument for doing sort of what you did where you said, let's just stay the path and then figure out how to apply it, um, in a way that's a little more, um, in line with your interests. Uh, so what did that research assistant opportunity look like? And, and how did you go from chiropractic into health informatics? Sure. So, um, when I was in my, my final year and my, my, clinic rotations and my, my training in the on-campus clinic that we had, um, I was approached by our, our clinic director who said, hey, we have this opportunity. I know you have some interest in research. Um, Dr. Anthony Lisi is running a pilot study at our clinic for this device uh, that um, you know, he needs a research assistant to, to help with contacting patients and enrolling patients and kind of doing the day-to-day data management type stuff um, for the, the project. And so I said, Hey, that sounds great. Let's, you know, let me get on, on board with that. And so, um, a couple conversations later, a little bit of paperwork later. And, uh, you know, I was set up to be the research assistant to help get this trial, uh, and keep the trial moving. Um, and so I, I started doing that. And as I was doing that, I actually, another, uh, one of our, our professors at the school, she had, uh, found out about this, other informatics training opportunity that they were proposing at Yale and uh, it seemed interesting. And ironically enough, Dr. Lisi was the, the person who was also running it. And so I, you yeah. know, it was, it kind of worked out well. Um, the thing that didn't work out well is they were actually looking for someone to start about six months before I was graduating. So the timing just didn't line up perfectly. And that was the, the first round of what's called the impact fellowship, which is an NCMIC foundation sponsored fellowship that, um, is now in its third iteration at Yale. So um, it's been a, a really nice early success. Um, and so in doing that, I, I started talking with Dr. Lisi a little bit about, okay, well, I don't think that one's going to work because, you know, the funding is already allocated to somebody else who is certainly very qualified and has, you know, been very successful. Um, you know, what other opportunities are out there? And I, I was turned towards uh, the VA has these advanced fellowship opportunities that are sponsored through the VA's Office of Academic Affiliations, who also manages like the VA residency programs and other VA clinical and research fellowships. And so there's a few of those that were located at the West Haven VA in Connecticut. And I said, all right, well, let's look at what what are these options? 
um, because informatics seems like it's a great fit for me. I have a background in computer programming and computer science and engineering and digital health and IT, and I can intersect that with some clinical care. Um, you know, what does that opportunity look like? And it turns out they have a, a medical informatics fellowship at the VA Connecticut Health Center. And, and so I, uh, I was able to, you know, get interested in that and, and, and get connected with the right people. Thanks to Dr. Lisi and, and, uh, with my, my current supervisor and mentor, Dr. Cindy Brandt, who I've now worked with for three and a half, almost four years, um, who's really kind of guided this early period of my, my research career. And, uh, and that's kind of gotten me to where I'm at in informatics at this point. That's that's pretty cool. Can you explain what health informatics is? It's certainly yeah. a term I've heard. I've I've been doing a couple of Coursera courses on it, uh, that and big data. And, uh, you know, I've seen some YouTube videos about like nurse health informaticians, um, but it's still kind of a, a vague term. How would you describe it? Yeah, so... Health informatics or biomedical informatics, those are kind of the broadest terms, like the big umbrella. Underneath those, you might find some other uh, terms like clinical informatics or even medical informatics sometimes fits a little bit underneath that nursing informatics. Um, but thinking of kind of biomedical or, or health informatics as the broadest term, um, the best way to describe it is actually just straight up the, the definition from the American Medical Informatics Association which is mm -hmm. that it's the science of how to use data, information, and knowledge to actually improve human health and de the delivery of healthcare services. So it's fairly broad in itself, the, the definition. It's not something that kind of corners it into a very specific field, which is one of the things I love about it. Um, it allows you to kind of broadly apply things like health information technologies, computer science, um, even, uh, you know, in, in uh, innovation in the electronic health record or, or any other kind of IT related characteristic or feature to to human health and, and healthcare delivery in order to ultimately improve patient care. That that's really the 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 main goal. It seems like a really interesting crossover of a lot of different disciplines. Um, as I've been reading about it, it seems like you can be a you know a trained information technology specialist who, you know, did computer programming, did networking, did all of that stuff, and then come into the healthcare space. Or you can be a healthcare practitioner, a nurse, um, even doctor, chiropractor, and then maybe you already have the skills or you develop the technical skills and kind of bring those things together. There's some administration with it. Um, it just seems so broad. And so I guess I just want to narrow down um, some examples of it and then talk about your particular experience. I mean, it, it sounds like it encompasses electronic medical records, uh, EHRs, EMRs, but it's not just, you know, the doctors putting in this data into a patient's chart. What happens with the information then? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, the biggest source of data is ultimately going to be the, the point of care you know, entry into the electronic health record from the practitioner or the patient or whoever it is. Um, but now we're seeing even more growth in things like wearables and other patient generated mm -hmm. data that uh, can now be integrated within the electronic health record through APIs or other forms of interoperability that really allow for these sort of big data sets to be generated. Um, 
and, and big data is a total other topic, but just in general, you know, it is what it, the name says. It's these big data sets um, full of different sources and different, uh, you know, elements that just on the size would not be manageable by a human to actually, you know, look at and interpret and use. But when you actually apply it in a digital format and you structure it in a way through like a a, a managed infrastructure, you can actually start to take advantage of, of a lot of the the benefits that an EHR has. Most people complain about their EHR, right? They most people oh, yeah. say, I hate <laughs> documenting my EHR. You know, insert name e- EHR name here is just so awful. Um, you know, I can't stand it. But the reality is, is it's a tool. You just have to make it work for you uh, to the best of your ability. And so um, there's, that's not saying that, you know, just because you don't like your EHRs that it's your fault, but it, it's a tool. It's just like anything else. And, and mm-hmm. you know, how you make that work for you is ultimately, um, you know, what's going to improve patient care. So by doing that and having it collect data in a way that positively impacts you, your practice, you know, the patients who you're seeing, uh, top to bottom, every stakeholder in a, in a healthcare system and an organization, um, allows you to actually take advantage of all these benefits of this connected world we're now living in um, to improve patient care, to improve patient monitoring, um, you know, to, to make your job easier. And, and really, that's the nice thing about informatics. It applies to so many different areas um, across the healthcare sort of spectrum. It's so amazing with wearables. I mean, the Apple Watch, for example, I'm a, a huge Apple fanboy. Um, I mean, just in this small device and you've got uh, your heart rate being taken a few times a minute. You've got blood oximetry now. Um, you can do an ECG. You would potentially, in the future, there's, the rumors are that they're going to have glucose monitoring. Um, and you're just having all these data points uh, for one individual. But then when you put it together with, uh, I don't know how many millions or billions of people have an Apple Watch now. And that's that's what we're talking about with big data. I mean, do you, would you consider like a, a single clinic who has, you know, hundreds, thousands of patients, a private chiropractic clinic, um, you know, who they've been seeing for 10 years, do you consider that big data as well? I think it depends. So it depends on a few things. So just to define big data, as I mentioned before, it's that, you know, it's these data sets that are huge. They come from a bunch of different sources and they grow at this sort of ever-increasing rate. So I think it has to meet a few criteria there. And um, there, there's these things called the the Vs of big data. There's some people call them the three Vs, the four Vs, the five Vs, whatever it may mm-hmm. be. But um, in general, uh, when you think about big data, you need to think about volume, velocity, variety, veracity, and value. And so I think okay. if you look at like, let's say for a Cairo clinic, for example, and think about that. So uh, volume generally, we're just looking straight up at the data size. It, it's usually on the order of things like petabytes or bigger. If you think about a clinical wow. test note, it's probably on the order of a few kilobytes. It's relatively small. When you start adding in things like imaging res- reports and even actual images, now we're starting to build that data set a lot bigger. So, um, you know, volume isn't everything though. When it comes to big data, you can have, uh, you know, a, a, the ability to connect with other uh, people that that increases mm-hmm. your your ultimately your data size and your data set. Um, 
But that also leads towards variety. And variety is one of those key components that data for big data really have to be collected from a bunch of different sources that contribute to that data. So if it's just a single EHR in a single chiropractic clinic, you might not think of that as big data because it's not necessarily incorporating uh, the different elements of different, you know, uh, different sources of those data. But when you start to intersect and interface and integrate though that EHR within um, the EHRs of the local health system, the access to the local radiology suite so you can get not just reports, but actual image data, um, you know, to diagnostic centers and getting lab results, et cetera. Um, now you're starting to pull in those different data sources and now you're building your volume and your variety. So you certainly are working towards towards the, that big data definition. Um, before you then get to velocity, which is actually the speed of changing the data, how fast it's growing, which certainly is just highly dependent yeah. on how many patients are coming in the door, right? How many are coming mm -hmm. through? What are you seeing as to whether or not your data set is ultimately growing that big? Um, and those are the three main Vs. And then the other ones are veracity and value. And veracity is just about the uncertainty of the data and whether or not it's sort of accurate or truthful. As, as data sets get larger, you're going to get a lot of noise and you're going to get a lot of mess in there. Um, and so you have to have some sort of faith in the, the truthfulness of the data that you're actually uh, looking at, which uh, that that's, you know, up to, to data managers and data scientists to ultimately try to decide, but comes to the, the last one, which is value. And I think that's where if you have these large data sets, whether they're big data or not, they certainly provide value to, you know, the chiropractor or the practitioner, or the clinic manager, whoever it might be who's working in these clinics, but, um, you know, is going to get some benefit from actually uh, using these data? Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. That helps to put into context the scale of what we're talking about. Um, and that's a, I think that's something that I'm always kind of curious about is how you get from, we could call it small data or just kind of normal data, mm -hmm. but then getting to that massive scale of big data. I mean, that's certainly Facebook and Google and Apple and, you know, all these uh, tech companies that have access to that. Um, but it seems like there's a tipping point there. Do you have any thoughts on, um, on what it takes, you know, whether it's, um, a clinic in themselves, or maybe the profession of chiropractic, actually, like, I don't know that we would say that we're really at a point where we have a huge data set specifically on chiropractic. I mean, what does it take to start that acceleration to get the velocity that you're talking about? Yeah, no, that's great. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing right now are these data registries that are popping up and um, that's going to be the key because ultimately, um, you know, most chiropractic clinics operate as sort of standalone buildings, standalone, um, yeah. you know, settings. Um, now with bigger EHRs, commercial EHRs, incorporating better data sharing through things like Epic has Care Everywhere, for example, Cerner has their own mechanism. Um that, Cerner is now the the EMR for the VA, right? They will be, yeah. So they're, they're or not yet hasn't quite transferred. Yeah, so that's a, it's a multi year transfer, but that that's you know just a that's that's a that's a podcast in itself right there. I'm sure. <laughs> I I did my clerkship at the VA, and that 
that old EMR. What was it called? Um, CPRS. Oh yeah. Yeah. CPRS. Oh my gosh. So talk about old school. That's what, that's like, for example, that's a great, like kind of, uh, EMR there that gives a, an example of kind of what a registry could look like though, because we have a a national EHR in the VA. So I see a patient in Connecticut, uh, uh, a data scientist in California could see the data for the patient that I saw in Connecticut. And so, um, you know, when I work on studies or projects and I'm querying and pulling data, um, I can, you know, take data from the whole VA enterprise, which is a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, you know, one of the few places where that that really can be done across the, the country when it comes to data related to chiropractic care. Um, but that's where those standalone clinics through these sort of data sharing mechanisms might be able to to sort of help build these registries that allow us to have a better um, better sense of kind of what's going on in the individual clinic, what what's going on to help patients better, what's going on from a, a business and billing perspective and a uh, you know a reimbursement perspective, all these things that are ultimately important. Um, you know, it it'll, it might even help break some of the cycle that that constantly exists of well, you know, you get compensated from an insurance carrier for six visits because that's what they do. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like you know, y- you and I learned. You know, you learn learn the content in the class because that's what's taught on boards, and they teach it on board. They test you on boards because that's what's taught in class, and it's that vicious cycle that I think having better data registries. And now that we can sort of do it from an infrastructure perspective very easily, thanks to, uh, you know, OTA uploads and other, you know, high bandwidth, uh, data transfer, it, it allows us to then be able to move towards a, uh, a scenario where we're not just delivering evidence-based practice, but we're generating practice-based evidence, which oh, is something like that, that we teach about all the time. And it, it's, it's, it's a, a relatively new term, but you know, there's some pragmatism in generating data from a clinical encounter, but you have to generate it on a large enough scale to actually, you know, generate evidence. This is not to, you know, say that uh, an individual case study clinical encounter is a moot point, but when you can start to generate data on that large of a scale, now you're talking real practice-based evidence and not just clinical anecdotes. Gosh, as you're talking, I'm getting kind of excited about the possibilities in my mind. Um, you know, as we, uh, there's there's quite a few topics in chiropractic research where um, we just don't know enough, but if we can get all the clinics to put the data together and and then look at it, you know, things like what is the true risk of stroke with cervical manipulation um, and, and, and why are insurance companies not paying for certain things? You know, they're using big data. We need to use it against them. But, but like you said, there's so many EMRs. I have a list because in school I started, I'm very picky about EMRs. Um, like what you said about you have to just make it work for you. I'm like, no, they need to make it work for me. <laughs> and so I was collecting a list. I have over 70 um, EMRs that are just for chiropractic that, that chiropractors can use. And I don't think any of them have the same database structure, right? Like they're, they're not collecting all the same information. So how do we get this together? You mentioned registries. Is that something like Spine IQ? Are there others that I'm not aware of? Yeah, so Spine IQ is really helping lead the charge right now. Um, that is that is one example of a of a patient data registry that um, you know is is aiming not just in in chiropractic care, but in you know it, largely in chiropractic care, but even more broadly, which is also important because we need to be able to compare 
You know, mm-hmm. are we doing something that's exceptional, that's unique, or are we doing something that fits the bill with, you know, everybody and, uh, you know, most current evidence seems like, you know, non-farm pain care is certainly recommended right now as the, the leading, uh, you know, the leading option, but there seems to be small to moderate effects in, you know, size differences between different options. So, um, those registries that are broader than just the chiropractic profession will allow us to also sort of, in a sense, cement our case to say like, Hey, we belong at this table. We belong as part of this. Um, the other registries that exist, there aren't too many that, that I'm necessarily familiar with, but, um, you know, I mean, we, we have the, the, the technology exists, so it's not like that's the, the challenge. It's kind of just getting started and, and saying, let's, you know, do something, which, you know, the people at Spine IQ did, and that's that's ultimately yeah. the step that needs to be done. Yeah, I've listened to a couple podcast interviews with Christine Gertz about uh, Spine IQ, and yeah, the ability to kind of compare your practice with others to see what your results are, um, the ability to see kind of the value with all the Medicare stuff. Um, but certainly just to get a, a database of adverse events as well, I think there are separate databases for that. I know there's a a, um, a patient outcome database that sort of allows you to do that, or if you can connect it to your EMR, then you can do that. So that's really interesting to to think about all of the possibilities with with big data. Um, but once you have that, you got to figure it out. Like you talked about data management on one aspect, but then actually figuring out what are the things that we can't see in this data that computers will help us see. And that is that where machine learning and artificial intelligence comes in? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's going to require, you know, these large data sets. Uh, an individual clinic could, you know, provide a little bit of data that might be relevant and you could build a strong predictive model on those data. Um, but ultimately, you start to grow your data sets and and ultimately put them into a structure that's that's usable across multiple places like um these different they're called common data models which is basically an underlying structure of electronic health records that would allow you to say that you know uh this this uh this icd code in this clinic is this icd code in this clinic we have that framework for diagnoses and procedures um, there's other sort of taxonomies and ontologies that work to do that already. There's things like the SNOMED concepts or uh, something called LOINC, which is a lab-related uh, ontology. Um, but these different models that exist that allow us to say that in this clinic, this data point means this. In this clinic, this data point means the same thing will allow us to keep building those models. And the reason we need to do that. Um, and build that foundational structure is to facilitate something like a machine learning problem, um, you know, building artificial intelligence systems that can use those individual data points and say, hey, by the way, because of this, this and this, your risk of, um, you know, this event occurring or your risk of, uh, you know, a higher likelihood of, let's say, transition to chronic pain at, at you know, three mm-hmm. months is higher or lower. Uh, but you need that foundational data to kind of match and be good because in machine learning, we have a saying called garbage in, garbage out. And that means that if you're putting bad data into your model, ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to get bad predictions on the output end mm-hmm. as well. So um, yeah, certainly there, there's some limitations, but kind of foundational to using machine learning and artificial intelligence ultimately is going to be 
what's the data structure that underlies it and can it be used across this sort of scalable enterprise whether that be you know a true health system enterprise or a series of you know offices that might want to operate as a, a an enterprise together can you help us understand the difference or or at least clarify the relationship between artificial intelligence and machine learning i've got all these books super intelligence and artificial intelligence that i haven't quite read yet but um sure you know, artificial intelligence kind of is a, a scary word to some people. People like Elon Musk think it's going <laughs> to lead to the end of the world, and yet he's got a company to to try to prevent that, that that's based on artificial intelligence. Um, and my understanding is machine learning is sort of a subset and probably more of what we are really talking about when we say artificial intelligence. What's, what's the difference? How would you define this? Yeah, so... Um... <clears throat> The picture, you know, like kind of three circles, let's say the biggest circle would be artificial intelligence. That's like this big, um, you know, kind of this vast unknown that people it's it's the buzzword right now. Right. Um, artificial intelligence is a, is a big on the big scale is just any sort of algorithm or software or IT application that really tries to approximate human cognition and the ability for uh, uh, a computer to sort of think like a human when it comes to complex data, could be medical data, could be anything. Um, so in the case of medical data, let's say it's kind of analyzing relationships between signs and symptoms and diagnoses and treatments and prevention and all these other different features of a care plan. Um, generally, it's kind of a term that just describes any kind of way in which a machine mimics human cognition, like learning or problem solving. Um, and the most sort of common thought about uh, what you can think of as artificial intelligence a lot of times is people will will kind of narrow it down it's only like a a computer like jarvis talking back mm -hmm. to you right as a, right. As a marvel fan but um <clears throat> even things like uh you know amazon echoes and google uh mm -hmm. google homes or whatever they're, they're called um are really a form of artificial intelligence and um when it comes to AI, that's been, you know, studied for a long period of time, dating all the way back to like the 60s. Um, then it went through a period where it didn't grow. And now it's obviously the technology sort of caught up and, mm -hmm. and facilitated this huge growth in artificial intelligence. Um, rooted beneath that, as I was saying before, think of three circles. The middle circle would be something like machine learning. It's kind of a subset of artificial intelligence that's a piece of it. It's not everything. It's not the whole thing. They're not equal. Um, but machine learning itself takes that sort of data analysis step and tries to automate it to and it automates like the model building that's kind of part of the foundation for artificial intelligence. Um, in that analytical models can be built kind of automatically just by feeding the data to a computer and allowing the computer to then learn the patterns and um uh, and the the relationships between these different data in order to subsequently, usually what we do is make a prediction or um, make some decision of some sort or um, potentially like cluster data that are similar into different uh, bins together um, with very little human intervention. So it's just really pass the data on and allow the code to do what it does to get you what you want as your output. Um, and then... That's that's sort of like I said a subset of that. I'm thinking of now the third the third circle that kind of even sits below machine learning is something called deep learning, and deep learning is a little bit more detailed in that it, it actually uses things like artificial neural networks, which are a little bit mm -hmm. more uh, computationally powerful. Um, 
very kind of attractive right now in the computer yeah. uh, and the, in the machine learning world um, because of their power. You can build these multi-level, multi-layer neural networks um, that allow you to have sort of better learning on on these data and generate stronger models than if we had used sort of these baseline statistical models that have been used for many years um, and can still be used and can still be used for the right applications to to great success. Um, and so sometimes they can be used better than the neural networks that sometimes learn a lot of noise rather than uh, signal. And so that that kind of brings you through this like idea of there. That's kind of partly partly foundational for AI. A lot of times you'll hear neural networks and deep learning feeding AI, um, but ultimately that's just a subset of machine learning, and machine learning is a subset of AI um, as sort of this broader picture idea. So I'm familiar with the example of of neural networks like apple has a dedicated chip now on the iphone um mm-hmm. which works for things like when you're taking video and it can detect what's the face what's moving and it can do the, the portrait mode the blur uh and then with the big data right you feed hundreds and thousands of photos and you say these are cats these are dogs these are humans mm-hmm. and then and that's the 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 learning set that you're talking about right and then you feed it images and you don't say what they are but because it's had all that previous data it can kind of then figure out at least hopefully i think it was dogs that would get confused for a long time or something yes, yes i remember yes. some story right um, dogs and cats were very difficult to discriminate between yeah. in, in, the, in the machine learning models which on a side note i you know my i have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and at one point my i think when he was two or three he he looked at a cartoon and he was like, that's a dog. And I was like, how the heck do you know that? Like, I think I just learned about this machine learning. And it's just amazing that, you know, human brains can decipher that when it yeah. really doesn't look like a dog. But computers are, are still getting there. Um, yeah. Well, that's an example kind of in, you know, in real world and, and the devices that we carry around every day. What are some examples of this machine learning happening in health informatics? Yeah, so I mean, there there's lots of different applications now because it's it's the the attractive thing to get involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, for the longest time something like IBM Watson, which was uh, is is really built on high level, highly intense uh, artificial intelligence models that was designed. They 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 came out and said when they developed Watson, IBM said they wanted to cure cancer. That was what they were going to use it for. You know, think of this, we can get a patient who comes in, we can get all their data, and we can say, this is the treatment that's going to cure their cancer. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they they went after a problem that was just too big for the technology at the time, and they um, went at it the wrong way. And so ultimately, unfortunately, that model failed. Um, it wasn't more successful than, uh, you know, humans in deciding this is the treatment that should be used. And so um, it actually sometimes was more harmful than helpful. And so what they did is pivot. They said, instead of us now saying, this is the treatment you should use, this is what, this is how you're going to cure this patient's cancer, they turned towards how can we use our model to like synthesize the literature and the evidence that's out there for the patient sitting in front of them in order to assist the doctor instead. So a lot of times you'll mm. hear the difference between, you know, people will really get picky on artificial intelligence versus augmented intelligence. And ultimately it's a battle of semantics, which really doesn't matter as much. But the idea is that 
you know, artificial intelligence is meant to replace a human thinking. Um, but the human is ultimately the one who's providing the healthcare to the other patient, right? And so they have to be making the ultimate decision and who would be responsible was a big ethical legal question. Um, but by pivoting towards here's the literature, here's, you know, the best the thought is that based on these, you know, papers and the, these studies that were done, if you give this patient this approach, they'll have a 65% chance of survival. If you give them this approach, they'll have a 20% chance of survival. Um, you know, they can decide, you know, what's the, the best way to go about it from, from there. Um, and that's where AI, whether it's artificial or augmented intelligence, I think is is sort of gone to um, that's in in the big picture, you know, from a high large commercial view. Um, but then we have even smaller things like calculators, you know, MD Calc, for example. A lot of people mm. use that website for uh, lots of different risk calculators, and a lot of those models are truly built from you know either statistical models or machine learning models that have generated these scores that correlate well with clinical findings, and so you have things related to, you know, predictive modeling of um, retinal scans related to diabetes or uh, uh, AI processing of um, digital x-ray for uh, potentially for, uh, you know, lung cancer on chest x-rays or um, even uh, skeletal uh, uh, deformities or malformations or, or anything. And so, um, you know, that that's, there's a lot of application right now because it's just where people want to be that, that space. Yeah. The digital imaging one is very interesting. Uh, I remember reading a, a paper about kind of what you said with Watson, that they thought that it would be able to detect uh, anomalies, abnormalities better than a radiologist, which it, it kind of does, but they realized that it's still, you still couldn't just rely on it alone. And so now it's meant to be a triage system where all the images go through the AI first. And then if it detects a potential anomaly, then it kind of puts that to the top of the list for the radiologists who are mm -hmm. reading hundreds of images a day. Um, so that's kind of interesting to think of the augmented uh, intelligence that you mentioned. Um, I'm, I got so fascinated when I saw um, this paper by Greg Kotchuk and, and his team on machine learning where they did, was this an example of natural language processing as well? I can't quite remember. Yeah. So yeah, they, that was a, that was a, a natural language processing study. Yep. Um, and so can you kind of explain that the learning aspect of it and then what they were trying to figure out? I think this was really just a proof of concept rather than trying to find some new magic solution to back pain, right? Yeah, it's a, uh, it was a, uh, so the, the study by Kochuk and, and his team um, they looked at the something that had been done similarly in some other literature um, in a different field, and they wanted to see if this uh, this uh, platform is called Word to Vec. It's a embedding software that um, is able to develop sort of and identify these kind of complex relationships between words in a text corpus, um, and it's built with a foundation of machine learning. There's there's a lot of link between machine learning and natural language processing. Um, it's sort of my area right now that I've been working in a lot when it comes to um, pain assessment in general occurring in chiropractic clinics. Um, but Dr. Kochuk's work, they use this uh, as like a feasibility study to see 
you know, could this be done in back pain literature? Could they use word to vec to kind of map these embeddings and understand relationships between sort of similar words in the back pain literature, which could allow you to then sort of identify what are these relationships that might exist um, in it more broadly. And, and similar people have, or similar studies have now been done in, in pain literature in general, um, which is kind of interesting. It kind of all happened at the same time, which was cool as I started to see all these papers come out. Um, it was interesting to see them. They were able to kind of cluster these different uh, topics uh, of these, these abstracts they had looked at related to anatomy, pathology, and treatment and see this very discriminated um, grouping of these different terms as to like, if, uh, if a, a study focused on this term or that term, um, you could very easily classify it as to whether or not it was a, a study about anatomy or about pathology or about treatment. And then they could even do further. Uh, they, they tested with treatment. They went another step further to look at different treatments that occurred. They wanted to look at um, with something like a conservative intervention or rehab intervention or a, a more intensive intervention. Um, and those clusters came out as well. And so um, clustering is a form of what's called unsupervised machine learning. So you don't necessarily know what you're predicting. You put them into little mm. groups and then you describe the group later. So if something has a bushy tail and tall ears and, and fur and it jumps around versus something has feathers and webbed feet and a, a bill that allows you to then say, well, this cluster looks like rabbits and this cluster looks like ducks. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they were able to do that and look and say, well, this looks like the anatomy section and this looks like pathology and this looks like treatment. And being able to kind of do those clustering is a really powerful way to kind of um, look at themes and groups, especially when it comes to natural language and how people write or describe or talk about things um, that allows you to really synthesize this huge body of, of, of literature and in, in their case, back pain literature in, in other cases, you know, other areas of, of science and, and do much more than a human could possibly ever keep up with in a, in a single year. And to uncover unknown connections, I think an example in their paper was like disc herniation is connected to sciatica and connected to, I don't know if it was uh, surgery in their example. Um, and, and so they take a lot of examples like that and feed it to the, to the system and then see, well, are there other things that are connected that we haven't considered? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the goal? Yeah, they, exactly. They so, were they were trying to see if it would come up with stuff that we already know just to verify it would work, right? Absolutely. So anytime you do any sort of machine learning, you're always going to have this sort of training set that you're going to train and mm -hmm. build your model on. You're also going to piece away a test set where you have known values and you want to test whether or not your model actually can predict them well. And you'll generate some statistics that give you some faith in whether or not your model is is performing well or not, just like we would for a diagnostic test. Uh, you know, the, the sensitivity and specificity translate to uh, precision and recall in the machine learning terms um, that you focus on. There's a slight difference in a, in a few of those, but um, it's, it's kind of just a, another name for something similar. You're going to look at false positives, false negatives as a percentage mm -hmm. of all your, or your, your predictions. Um, but, but then you can also hold out even another set called a validation set where you can actually uh, either you know further validate your model's performance based on the test set, or you can even tweak some of the parameters to try to make your model a little better. 
And so when you have these kind of knowns, it's really easy because you can say, okay, this study is about, you know, spinal manipulation. This study is about uh, diagnostic testing for uh, lumbar facet syndrome. This study is about lumbar radiculopathy. And you, you have those knowns versus now you're handed a study that is about all of those things potentially. And, you know, it needs to learn, well, which one of these should I pick or do I pick all of them? Do I pick one of them? Mm. Do I spit it in the middle of the cluster of all things because I don't know the difference. Um, you know, that's a limitation to uh, the machine learning model, but you can use the, that extra data to help kind of tweak that and work around the, uh, the, um, the data that are out there. It's so cool. That paper was so exciting. It was the first example I had seen of machine learning and that they, you know, shared the tool they use and it was in Python, which I'd, I'd kind of just started learning. And so I downloaded you know, I was in the terminal and started downloading Word to Vec and nice. uh, in the Python. And then I realized, and I think I downloaded the data set as well. And then I was like, okay, I have no idea what to do now. <laughs> like, where do now? you go where, from where here? Um, so I want to he- hear your thoughts on kind of where someone would go if they want to learn that. But, but you've done a, a study uh, in the VA where you were looking at frequency of visits of um, patients to chiropractors within the VA system. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, we did a, we conducted a study where we wanted to look and see, could we use machine learning, uh, different bunch of different models potentially to predict, uh, at a baseline visit when a patient comes in in their first visit at chiro for a chiro clinic visit, um, you know, how many visits would they need in the next year? Do we have any clue? Do we have any way to say, because, you know, that might be helpful to know, hey, by the way, based on all these things, you know, you need you, sh- you need two visits or you should come in for 10 visits. Um, we didn't have any data on outcomes, so we didn't know whether or not patients had these number of visits because they got better or because they didn't get better and they opted to go somewhere else or, you know, they were referred to somewhere else because it was more appropriate. So that was a limitation. But ultimately, we said, for the most part, Patients are, you know, going to come in. They're going to have a period of time where they're going to have visits. Um, let's look at a year. Let's see if we could predict how many visits they're going to use in that one year. Obviously, it could be good for staffing purposes. Could be good for, as said before, identi- identifying and telling the patient, "Hey, you should plan on this." Mm-hmm. Um, we took a bunch of demographic variables. We took a bunch of clinical variables of comorbidities that were present. Um, uh, of different features that may have been uh, available at the time of that visit and said, let's spit them into a bunch of different models and let's see how the models do. Um, It was for a machine learning project at large, but uh, within that you can select different models that actually, um, you know, guide the prediction. So some models are stronger at predicting some types of uh, questions than others. And so we said, let's feed our data into these models and see how well it does to predict, you know, how many visits these patients need. Um, We opted not to use a continuous number of visits for a bunch of reasons, but ultimately we looked at the quartiles of the data that we used. We said, could we identify the people who really only had one visit and then they were gone? Um, Whether that be because they were referred out because, you know, chiropractic care maybe wasn't appropriate for them whether they were referred out because they were referred to community care and the VA is a very common uh, step out as well, um, or whether they just didn't come back. We didn't discriminate on what those were, but just want to know who had one visit. Um, then we wanted to know also what uh, group of people had potential for two to three visits, 
um, four to six visits and then seven or more visits. And so you can think of how we had like sort of the, the very low users, kind of the middle users in that two to six groups, um, which was represented 50% of the data. And then the people who would be sort of more high, higher users of chiropractic care in that they had more than seven visits in the year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but ultimately, you know, that relative to the amount of people who had less than seven was actually really common. Um, so we tested four different models uh, as a base uh, model to try to predict the, that outcome. And what we found was that nothing was really great at predicting the outcome, um, which to me was interesting. I thought it was something very, very interesting. Um, you know, it, that says to me that when, uh, you know, potentially when an insurance carrier says, well, we're going to deny visits for this patient because of, you know, these characteristics, there's no evidence that says that, that we should be able to do that, you know? And so we have, we're left with what's the best practice and the best practice generally, you know, is, you You're know, right. treatment trial and care for a period of time, reassess after a certain number of visits. Um, we just don't know what the number of visits really is. And that, that, that's the big challenge, but we did, we published that in uh, chiropractic and manual therapies. So it's open access available, open access, which is great. Um, uh, as of, as of last, uh, last summer, which was awesome. Was that disappointing to you or do you just think we need an even bigger data set? Um, or, or is it just, we're never going to be able to tell patients, you know, they come and sit down and say, doc, how long is this going to take? And the truth is, I don't know. Is it always going to be, I don't know. Uh, I, so as of right now, based on the data that I saw, yeah, the the answer right now is still, I don't know. I would, I would certainly, if patient came and saw me, I would say, I couldn't tell you right now, but let's see how you do over the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things we identified is that, uh, you know, the, the, probably the main limitation is we didn't have outcomes data. Um, and if we can get patient reported outcome measures data, at baseline and, and potentially even further along in their trajectory, we might be able to look and see, you know, better features of like, hey, based on this, it looks like you you have a higher or lower risk of needing, you know, more or less visits. Um, and so that's that's some of the the work I'm currently working on is uh, I'm proposing a, a, a grant proposal to actually look at trying to extract patient reported outcome measures so that ideally we could use it for this purpose too, to kind of say like, based on these outcome measures, um, you know, it seems like we can, we can better predict that, that, the outcome when it comes to how many visits somebody needs. Um, I certainly don't think it's that we didn't have enough data. We actually had, uh, to my knowledge, it was the largest cohort study of chiropractic patient data that I was aware of, um, using an electronic health record cohort. There may be bigger, so if anybody's listening and they have a larger cohort study, then I, I can stand corrected. But I think I wrote that in the paper at the time. You did. So. You did. I'm trying to look here. Um, that it was something like 100,000. Where's the number? I don't know if I can find the number right now, but um, uh, tw almost 20,000 veterans. And I'm trying to see the number of visits. Can't quite find it. But yeah, it did. was. Yeah, it was like 19, almost 20,000 veterans. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I mean, on average, they had about four, three or four visits a piece. So we're looking at probably, you know, on the order of almost 100,000 visits, which is pretty common for, for VA to have that many chiropractic visit, I noticed, visit data available. I noticed one of them, the, the last quartile was up to 73 visits 
in the year yeah, it was in a single year yeah it was <laughs> for one um, patient for one patient wow we, we did find what at least i did find on a on a cursory look is there was uh, a few things that stood out to me when it came towards outliers um and that's why we ultimately also decided against looking at an actual continuous number of visits and just binning mm-hmm. everything into seven or more visits um, to try to capture those people that really were high outliers. Um, there certainly weren't no low, there were no low outliers. Everybody had at least one visit. Um, but yeah, I think part of that was driven by potentially the facility they were located at. Um, either due to potentially clinic availability, the patient either needed it and the clinic had the availability, whereas some other clinics maybe had a little tighter availability of getting people in, um, or the structure of the clinic. Some chiropractors are, are uh, you know, paid VA full-time chiropractors. Others operate within VA systems as what's called fee basis care, where they get paid based on the visit they see. And so there may have been some uh, creep of... Uh, of uh, potentially some incentive to have patients come back more frequently as well, which we suspected could have been a, a potential uh, driver of that trend. Wow, that's so cool. Like I said, this stuff is so fascinating, and I'm imagining some other listeners and potentially students um, have listened to you speak and maybe felt a connection, felt like this is something they're interested in. What guidance or suggestions can you give to people who may want to at least look down this road of health informatics. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll say is start early. Um, I got into it very late in my, you know, Cairo school training or even just training in general. Um, it's never too early to get started. Um, whether that means getting yourself started and learning how to code, for example, whether it's in Python or R or SAS or anything, um, you know, build that skill set and build it early. Um, get int- if you're interested in research, you know, get attached to people who are doing research. Um, there's certainly, you know, now, as we know with, with, po- you know, I mean, uh, later in now in the, the COVID pandemic, um, you know, a room isn't really a thing anymore. You don't have to be in the same location. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, walk into somebody's office. You can connect with people across the world via zoom or, you know, uh, teams or anything that allows you to, uh, you know, if you find someone who's interesting to you and you can connect with them and, and think it's going to help, you know, build your career, then then go for it. I mean, take that chance. Um, so start early, develop the skill set. And then, you know, as you start to get towards your your time, wherever you're going, um, continually explore opportunities that are out there because there are a lot more opportunities out there and they're constantly growing um, when it comes to opportunities in digital health and health IT you know, long, long ago, obviously, the 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 only path for the chiropractor, for example, was you go and you work in an office, you know, they, they used to say you hang your shingle, right? right? And that that's what it is. Which they still um, say. And I'm just like, what? what they shingle? still say what a lot of, about? yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you're going to school for a clinical degree. So you, you for the most part, yeah, you're going to, you know, have an interest in clinical care. And um, there's a lot of ways to impact clinical care, though. And it's not just in that one-on-one patient visit. Um, the only pathway forward is not to, you know, go and be an associate for a few years, get some experience, then open your own office. That's that's not true. There's lots of opportunities. Um, informatics is great because as a discipline, it's just it's another opportunity that's out there. You can, you know, potentially get involved in your local health system via that route. Um, probably not delivering clinical care necessarily, but 
you know, if you have this interest, you could be a an EHR specialist or an informatics consultant or something like that. Um, the nice thing about informatics is as a whole, it's a very receptive and very open um, discipline uh, in that it doesn't really matter what your clinical area is. Informatics is so broadly applicable across all these clinical spaces. And it's a very welcoming community in that sense. Um, intentionally, AMIA, the American Medical Informatics Association, has that sort of as their mantra that like, it doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter, you know, where you're from or what your education or training is. Um, you know, you can contribute in informatics at, on the large scale and you can really, and that's the benefit is it's just another opportunity. So explore your options early and, and, you know, help build your skill set If that's something that sounds interesting to you so that when you're ready to, you know, apply for a job in informatics or, uh, search out an academic job or a postdoc or something like that, you can actually, you know, take that step and, and be ready to do so. Uh, you mentioned getting started early um, with coding and things like that. It, do you think it's necessary to get a degree in computer science or are these opportunities of Coursera and Data Camp and Code Academy enough to, to develop the skills that would be needed? Yeah, so I, I think a part of that also speaks to if you find a job opportunity you think is interesting or you're early on and you're looking at jobs, what are their requirements? Sometimes that might be a requirement. Sometimes it might be what they're looking for. But that being said, the best coders are generally the people who learned, you know, in middle and high school or, you know, in a garage and they do their work at 3 a.m. and they don't have a degree. You know, it's not that doesn't make you a good coder. That doesn't make you a good programmer. It doesn't uh, just because you have a degree. And so you'll have a lot more theory, but you may not have as much practice. And so um, I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, a requirement to have advanced training or a degree or, or a certificate of some sort. It just is another way, if it's something that either keeps you more accountable or you think can help you in the long run, um, those opportunities that are out there is, is in the form of either master's in health informatics or computer science or anything, or... Um, Coursera courses and, you know, certificates in health informatics or in, uh, you know, coding boot camps and stuff like that. If you have sort of no foundation, it might be good to get you started. Um, if you think you want to have something on paper that actually can, you know, you can present and say, look, but I did this certificate. You think that'll help you? It certainly wouldn't hurt. Um, but it's also not a requirement if your goal is to be, I'm a strong coder and I want to, you know, that's the, what I'm going to lean on as my, uh, my skill set. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit more about the postdoc that you've done. There's, there's quite a few people, especially around Yale. I think it has to do with the connection with Anthony Lisi and the VA being close there. Um, uh, a postdoc isn't necessarily doing a PhD. What, what does that all entail? Sure. Yeah. So a postdoc, um, is, a it's, it's usually you'll hear it called a postdoc opportunity or postdoc fellowship. Um, you, you'll, it's a, it's a training period. It's a career development period, really. Um, the nice thing about a postdoc is generally it's, it's less structured in that the structure is up to you to determine, yeah. um, you'll go in, you'll have a mentor of some sort. And that mentor, um, generally is the person who's bringing the funding for you to actually have the postdoc and they're, they're training you, right? The goal is to develop you into something, 
Um, and that something can vary a little bit. Sometimes like we have, uh, as, as you mentioned, Nathan, we have a few different postdoc opportunities that have been run through Yale Center for Medical Informatics at the time. Um, and, and our, our affiliate over at the VA where I did mine. And, um, you know, there's some that focus on informatics and others that focus on clinical research, some that focus on, um, policy and, and health policy. And, um, at the VA, we also have ones on, uh, on, uh, women's health, for example, and, and other, uh, other different sort of areas of interest. Um, when it comes to a postdoc, it's okay. There's this kind of broad topic that might be of interest because that's, you know, the area those mentors have great experience in and can provide you with, with guidance on. Um, but the nice thing is you get there and you start to develop an individualized development plan that says, here's where I want to be in two years when I finish my postdoc, for example. Um, uh, and, and how do I get from where I am now to there? What do I need to learn skill set wise? What do I want to, uh, take course wise? Do I want to pursue a PhD or a master's? Um, and, and, you know, how do I get that done? And, and do I want to be chasing grants and applying for grant funding? Like my route is that I want to go that research route. Do I want to step into a, uh, more clinician heavy clinician scientist route where I want to be involved in research and science, but I want to be a clinician primarily. Do I want to take a job as a public health advisor or a policy person? Um, you know, across the board, there's lots of opportunities, but it depends on where you want to go with it. And that's the nice thing about postdocs is they, they create an opportunity for you. If you have that direction, that drive to kind of hone your skills and, and build a, a foundation for your career. But at the same time, um, you know, have a little bit of structure and guidance in the fact that you have a great mentorship team around you and an environment that's meant to facilitate your success and your training um, in a way that I think, you know, can really help, uh, you know, young professionals in general to really, you know, get to where they want to be career-wise. Yeah, as I've looked into them, it, it seems like it is kind of a, a vague concept. It, and as you explained it, that sort of makes sense. Is there is there a, a resource or a way for um, students or practicing doctors who may be interested in going down that way to kind of find out what the opportunities are? Yeah, so I, there currently isn't a uh, like a centralized resource, at least that kind of lists these, especially for you know uh, student TCs. Let's say, um, I think a part of it right now is just kind of word of mouth and and learning what's out there. Um, you know, something like. ACA Next Gen, for example, or, or ACA Student Council that helps to, um, you know, potentially get the word out on these things when they come about. Um, we kind of need to break that a little bit. I think we need to get the word out earlier so people mm -hmm. can start to learn like, hey, I want to be competitive for some of these. I want to get involved with those skill set building and research and stuff like that earlier on so that they get, you know, opportunities. Um, and then there are opportunities at um, you know, that, that these sites that have what are called T32 training grants, where they actually have, uh, funding for postdoctoral fellows, um, provided by, let's say NIH or other, uh, funding sources. Um, and those, you know, you could search the NIH database for that NIH reporter to see where those are from something like the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, um, NCCIH, where, you know, they support, I think it's five or six, maybe eight different sites that have their own postdocs um, and and slots that are available because, you know, they want to help grow the the 
you know, future of, of CIH practitioner, clinician scientists too. And so, um, being able to, uh, identify any opportunity and then just reaching out. I mean, if you have an interest, you know, not necessarily, you know, I, I won't say that you're going to, you know, reaching out is enough to get you the position by any means, but at least to, you know, reach out and learn what do you need to do in order to be competitive for this, whether it's, you know, upon graduation or within a few years after graduation or, um, you know, whatever it may be, but there, there's certainly opportunities. A part of it is just being, you know, motivated to go and, and try to seize those on your own. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, certainly something I've been kind of exploring in the back of my mind. Um, but, uh, some limited, uh, potential there when you, moving isn't an option right now. Yeah. Um, I did have a call with Kenneth Young out in, in England who has a musculoskeletal uh, research center that he's developing and says that one would be available uh, remotely, potentially, although it might be difficult to, to cover the costs of it. Um, to bring it back clinically a bit, and I know we're, we're running a bit long, as I tend to do, so if you need to go, let me know. But uh, um, I'm curious how you balance your research and your uh clinical care, because you are still doing patient care. Um, how do those things complement each other and how do you balance that out? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm a, I, I, I consider myself a clinician scientist in that I, you know, see patients, but I also am predominantly research in my case. Um, I'll see patients, uh, usually it's one day a week at the VA Connecticut Health Center. And so, uh, I, you know, see a handful of patients that I go in on my days where I've been seeing patients. And then, uh, you know, the other days I'm, I'm largely focused on research and, um, there's not this firm, you know, delineation in my, my experience, at least in that, you know, on days when I'm doing my research work, I still have an eye out on the EHR for messages that might be coming through or, um, you know, scheduling issues or getting patients, you know, what they need. Um, and vice versa. If an email comes through and I'm sitting in the clinic and I'm working on something, I, you know, I might address it right then. Um, or some downtime between patients, I'll be reading or writing or whatever I might be doing. Um, so a lot of the balance is just kind of organic and natural. It just kind of balances out as to whatever your, your timing is of, of your, your clinic schedule. Um, you know, I have a relatively low clinic load compared to, uh, some people who might have more intense clinic loads as clinician scientists. Um, because again, I, I fo my, most of my time is, is spent on, on research or operations type work. Um, but that being said, it, it really, I, what I like the most is part of my role in, uh, what I do is getting involved with the VA's electronic health record and the electronic health record modernization. We mentioned Cerner before and moving to Cerner. Um, and being a part of that uh, is is fun for me because it's kind of, you know, building the next EHR system for mm -hmm. VA chiropractors to use. But I wouldn't be much of a, a, a good uh, spokesperson or, or a person involved if I didn't know kind of current state, right? And so it allows me to really blend okay, I have experience in CPRS and the current EHR and what I'm doing now versus, okay, I, I have to, you know, this is where we should go because this is the workflow now and this is how people work and, um, you know, this is how the clinic operates. And, um, you know, I like that there's there's intersection with my clinic responsibilities and my, my research and operations roles uh, that allows me to really kind of like 
you know, make the best of it and, and enjoy my, my day to day. And it's not, it's never boring. That's for sure. So. Yeah. I, it sounds like, uh, I mean that you, you like to be involved in a number of different things rather than just doing the same mm-hmm. oh, thing sure. day in and day out. <laughs> um, for the clinicians out there, are there any, any AI based tools that they may be able to use, whether in clinic or in their kind of their day-to-day lives that might be chiropractic related? Um, that will harness the power of, of machine learning and data and maybe improve their, their work or their daily lives. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not super familiar with any that I think would be, you know, off the top of my head, like this is the, this is the way to go. Um, the, the one thing that might help is there's a few kind of resources related to, um, research itself and like research synthesis, kind of what I mentioned before with Watson, um, where, uh, you know, you can plug in a topic and it can help give you kind of this really focused, um, you know, information on that topic that's been synthesized. Um, and that I think from a clinician standpoint, you know, that might be the most important thing because you're never going to read every, every article, um, you know, you're, it's, it's, you could be the fastest speed reader in the world and you'll never keep yeah. up with, you know, publications, of course. Um, but if you, you know, keep, if you use this to kind of help synthesize the ideas that are out there and, and, you know, a topic of interest to you as you develop your Pico question for the patient you're wondering, or, you know, even if you're just looking kind of casually at a, a condition or something you want to learn more about. Um, using these kind of research synthesis tools, I think is probably the best way to kind of take advantage of AI for clinical practice. Um, and then any kind of patient facing app or wearable or something that generates data and uses AI to process it. Um, I'm not familiar with any that are really super applicable yet in MSK care, but, um, I'm certainly sure that there's going to be more coming out as the, you know, the market kind of builds into, uh, wearables and AI really driving, uh, healthcare at large. Yeah, I know 3D for Medical at an Apple uh, event demonstrated their iPad app that would use um, you know the infrared camera and machine learning to track range of motion. But I haven't seen That's it awesome. come to market yet, so I don't know what happened there. Yeah. What's the research tools um, that you're that you've talked about that might help synthesize? Yeah, so I mean. Just in general, I mean, any kind of literature uh, synthesis um, platform, something like, uh, you know, there's there's Site, for example, that that's another one that helps you kind of find literature that's out there. Um, there's other, even just other tools that may not be AI-based, but allow you to even just organize your, your, mm-hmm. your reference library. I use EndNote personally, but there's things like Mendeley and and uh, research gate that allow you to kind of create your own kind of, um, libraries, which are, are really good. Um, and of course, if you run into paywalls, there's always, uh, potentially routes around that, that I'm certainly not endorsing in any way, but some of them um, are legal and free. Some of them are legal and free. The easiest, (laughs) honestly, the easiest way to get, to get a paper. If you're having trouble with the paywall is reach out to the author. They really love sharing their work. And yeah, it might take you a little bit of time to, you know, hear back from them, but people love getting emails that say, Hey, I'm really interested in reading this paper. Can you send it to me? And for the most part, authors can share, you know, at least a version of it that they have that they can share a few. So, 
um, you know, advocating. And ResearchGate makes that really easy. Absolutely. Yeah. You can share. Right. You can, you can find it and then you can, um, uh, just with a button, you can request the full text. I I think I actually did that for one of your papers that I couldn't get access to. There you go. Um, there's other, there's other like plugins for Chrome as well. I know there's a plugin. I'm trying to remember the name yeah. of it where it actually will. I've got a few. Yeah. will tell you if you, um, oh, it's called unpaywall is actually the name of it, but it actually will tell yeah. you if it can find a, uh, free and available PDF version of an article. And, uh, you know, when you're on the PubMed page, for example, and again, that's that it uses full, fully, you know, legal pathways to do so. It just finds the available ones of ResearchGator, PMC, PubMed Central, or other ways, and it just kind of streamlines mm-hmm. your your synthesis of the literature. Yeah, I love Unpaywall. I did a video on that one. Awesome. So if, if listeners want to go to my YouTube channel, and I need to do a video on all the other tools. Have you used Site AI very much? I haven't used. I it just too discovered much, it like honestly. a week ago. I, I started getting started with it. Um, diverted to working on the the grant I've been working on, but um, I do see a lot of potential for it for a lot of the things I'm doing um, to help me kind of synthesize what I'm working on and, and try to, you know, generate what I can from a, a, a you know, an easier, more manageable uh, literature search perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. We'll uh, keep in touch on that. I'll, I've got to well, start using it a little bit more too. Well, Brian, thanks so much for sharing all of your experience and allowing me to geek out a little bit on these things. Awesome. That, Absolutely. Uh, happy to be there. So tantalizing and uh, in tech and appreciate uh, sharing your story. Yeah, happy to do so. It, it's, uh, it was great to you know chat and, like you said, geek out with you a little bit here. It's uh, always fun to do that on a Friday afternoon. So, uh, Yeah. Well, I'll leave uh, links to your uh, your bio and perhaps contact information, Absolutely. as well as a lot of the things that we've talked about today, so that at least listeners can go find them and find some helpful resources. Awesome, really appreciate you, it. You Thanks as well. For your time. Thanks.